I think at some point working with so many scientists, I realized, oh, scientists are also hoping for the best. And I just thought we have to be more strategic. Things have to change and we have to design that. So how do you design that? And the lovely thing with art is that it creates hope. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Prof. Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Hanley Kutsia, a Johannesburg-based ecological artist who's been working across the boundaries of art, science, and activist engagement. Hanley describes herself as a visual artist, researcher, and innovator. Through her ecological art practice, she aims to grow audiences that appreciate art, contextualize the science behind the natural world, and improve environmental infrastructure development. In her functional artworks, she uses waste such as wastewater, wood offcuts, and quarry waste as her medium. And then she uses these materials alongside unlikely transdisciplinary partnerships to build site-specific artworks and public interventions. Even more interesting to me is the fact that Hanley has just completed an MSc at WITS. We're familiar with artists who undertake MAFAs or MFAs in collaboration with scientists or science labs. But Hanley was accepted to do an MSc in the Faculty of Science, despite the fact that she had no undergraduate science training. The subject of her research was art as transformative practice, interrogating transient ecological patterns. This is an important breakthrough which we'll explore in this podcast, together with Hanley's work as a visual artist and, very importantly, as an innovator. This podcast was recorded remotely with Hanley in Denmark and myself in Johannesburg. We had some technical problems with the recording, but I think the subject matter is so fascinating that I ask you to bear with the occasional variations in sound quality. Hanley, welcome. Great pleasure that we can finally sit down, even if it is from Johannesburg to Denmark. Let's start the discussion because I think there's lots to talk about. What fascinates me about your self-description is that you describe yourself as visual artist, researcher, and innovator. And in this conversation, I really want to unpack particularly the last two terms in your self-description. But let's start with what was your personal journey that led you from an HDIP in photography to your decision to actually take the opportunity and, as you say, move out from behind the lens and become a visual artist? I think uh, I had to ceiling during the 2008 recession. You know, analog was really being phased out. The digital era created technology where a lot of people could tell their own stories. And a lot of my clients, when I was working as a photographer, they were looking for photo essays to tell people's stories. And I thought I was too much of a voyeur. And I thought if people, if NGOs buy smartphones themselves and let people tell their own stories, that would make better visual material for their own reporting. So I felt a bit uncomfortable, increasingly uncomfortable. And I've always wanted to work with art in public space. So I started moving out in that lull. I 
didn't have work for a year. The international agencies that are shut for, you know, didn't give me any more assignments. Lots of uh, photography scene changed in that year. And I took that as an opportunity to try something else. And what were your first steps into public art? I found around and um, B. Fainter actually suggested that I speak to Usha Sidram. And then Usha had a wonderful big studio in the southern parts of Joburg in Overton. So she had a room, like a nice big room that I could work in. And that was in the end of 2009. I started hiring a room from her to build the first public artwork that is in Fordsburg, Amachruki. And it took me, you know, the good December holidays pretty much to, to lay the mosaic out. And then I was looking to put it up. And the uh, architect, um, Teresh Gavinder, he said he walked down the street in Fordsburg all the time. I was looking in Fordsburg because that's where my great-grandmother was a squatter after the South African War. And I wanted to revisit that. So Teresh suggested that wall at the back of Lillian Studios. It took a good eight or ten months because it went up in the Arts Alive Festival in um, 2010. Yeah. Brenda Devar got some funding for me to install the Amakhruti in 2010. And you and Usha went on to form a actual formal grouping? Yeah, we actually kept like a house on fire. We felt much stronger when we were in conversation. So we had bolder, well, from my perspective, the bolder sort of proposals that we could pitch. And we really just sort of sparked each other's ambitions, I suppose. <laughs> and I think we continued for about two years or so. So, and it culminated in a wonderful work that we did for COP17 in Durban. Something that rolls up. It was a work that we worked with 60 beaders from the Valley of the Thousand Hills. And with COP17, we had, I think, something like six weeks to beat 1.6 million beads into a subframe animation. And then, luckily, last year, we had the opportunity to exhibit it again exactly a decade later. When you say stop frame animation, I think, of course, of your hyena sculptures, which you stop frame animated during the Watershed Festival at Witz in 2018. And you had those hyenas wandering all around Witz campus. <laughs> How was this beaded project a stop frame so we sourced a pangolin video clip from an ngo that were working on pangolin conservation something that rolls up is a pangolin rolling up and it rolls up and then it's in a shape where it's pretty much indestructible even a lion can't fight through that the only real sort of I suppose, enemy <laughs> would be humans and they've been perfect. And obviously in the past 10 years, that story has become much more shared. So we then got this video clip and then slowly selected a couple of frames, almost like undoing the video 
and working backwards how animation works. And then we took each of the frames that we took stills. And usually my process when I design things because of my photographic history, I would then simplify the pixelation to such an extent that it's low resolution, but just enough to be comfortable on the eye. So it's a still that I take through Photoshop and then through an embroidery pattern program. And that gives us the key that we can share then with the beaders. So a lot of the elderly women were illiterate, but they could follow the key because it was only five symbols. And then they'd have to slowly work through each bit and each line and over six weeks produce 100 panels. What do you think you learnt from your early work in public art and your collaboration with Usha, having arrived as a photographer engaging with this new field of practice? Oh, it wasn't right away, but as I was making more and more work, I realized that I was really actually hiding behind the camera. That was a, a comfort zone. And when you're a photographer, you basically go into this almost that director mode. <laughs> and it's so now that directs the shots that you'd like to get. I think what really started surfacing around 2011, 2012, when I was starting to make more and more work out in the streets, I think especially 2012 when I did an engraving of my grandfather in the Wissex Street Post Office. I spoke to Eric Itzkin, got permission to do a process piece, and I said to him, I want to work with this, this heavy history that I've got. I'm trying to unlearn all this Afrikaner baggage that I've got, and the, the post office burned down, I think it was in 2009, so I had this desire to go and scratch into those brand walls because my grandfather started there as a postman when he was 14 and then worked himself up to the postmaster in 1971 when I was born. So that timeline was really important for me to try and dig up stuff about my own heavy history that I was very uncomfortable with and I think the digging started <laughs> um, and it also concluded. So from about 2010 to 2013 or so, I did a lot of family-related pieces and then sorted a lot of family-related issues out, you know, with aunts calling and asking what's going on with this and telling me secrets and taboos, which was what I was after. I wanted to work more transparently and not have all these secrets that's eating me up. <laughs> so that process in that time started giving me the tools to how to unlearn stuff physically from in a visual arts process. How do you get rid of the bad stuff? And the RMB had a, and Merchant Bank had a, a year where they sponsored 10 people from the arts to go study social entrepreneurship at the Gibbs Business School. So Ush and I were both selected because of our work that we did in that time. And they were very open to the idea that I wanted to bring a bit of an environmental, social 
elements into it at the time already. So my mentor in that process that year was Shannon Redden Turner. She's an urban planner. And she made me aware of how public art gives you this neutral sense of like ears on the ground where you can listen to all sorts of things about the public and what they perceive that you wouldn't have had a reason to do if you weren't there doing something, making an artwork. So I started listening to the city in a different way. And I got over all the family stuff. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to dig deeper and realize that all the cracks in the concrete, there's actually an ecology underneath there. So that's how I got into sort of eco-social thinking. I'm very interested in how you moved into engagement with scientists. And I'm thinking particularly of those burns which you need to describe for our listeners, that you did in the felt around Nyrox. And you were doing those in collaboration with scientists also working in the same area, but obviously coming to it with very different notions, with very different questions. Can you talk about that entire experience? Because I think that's very interesting. I didn't know how to work with scientists. And... I mean, at the time, I attended science conferences. I gate crashed many things where I was just sitting there. You know, the whole art science thing was not so happening yet, I suppose. Sally happened to be a friend, Sally Archibald, and we couldn't agree on what this thing is. But then at one point, she said to me that, do I perhaps have access to arrange a high felt grass patch for her to burn for an experiment because she's been burning low felt patches in the Kruger, nice little squares. <laughs> and I said to her, sure, but you're not going to be able to burn a square. I'm going to create this opportunity for you. Then we need to burn an image. She got very excited about that. So I approached Benji and he spoke to all the landowners and, and that got that started. But, you know, it's time-consuming. I think the build-up to the first burn was probably about two years. What took the time? Was it negotiations with landowners? It's a lot of things. It's that, definitely. I mean, those things do to time, but it's also seasonal. So, you know, you burn in winter and... So if you think about the idea in September, then you've got to wait nine months before you can burn. So I'm not quite sure of what happened when, but, you know, the burns that Sally and all her whole team have done all over Africa, it's 10-year projects, you know, it's not quick. So just the permission, you know, like with working on fire as a government organisation, we had to picture to them in a way where they always hit the news when there's runaway fires. So we had to make sure that this opportunity also creates a platform for them to speak about the importance of fire and why controlled burns and like the periphery burn technique is important for people to know about. 
Interestingly, like throughout the whole process, we burnt in 2015 and in 2017 with both artworks. We kept the arts and the science very parallel. It's very interdisciplinary still at the time. I had a desire to try and take it further, but I didn't have the tools. And Sally was very focused on the science, so it was wonderful for her. She got Bob Scholes to join us, and I didn't even know who he was at the time. Um, he's such a celebrated climate scientist. So he was just strutting along happily, <laughs> really enjoying the day. And he said to me afterwards that it was just wonderful to be immersed in something new. And he bought a print, you know. Then, I mean, he's a, he is a collector as well. So, I mean, he was a collector. And then in the 2017 burn, we actually had to coordinate a lot of things because they had exclosures. The exclosures are areas where you exclude animal grazing after the burn so that you can monitor what insects come first. It's very much a succession of animal behavior after the burn that's analyzed. And many people look at many different things. And so the exclosures had to be completely in the same places. So I didn't want to burn the same image again. There's no way I'd do that. So I had to make sure that the latent image from 2015 was completely overlaid with the 2017 image. And that was quite a challenge to make sure that on the landscape, because, I mean, it takes the surveyor, and the surveyor also, you know, it's a surveyor who's got an arts and science understanding. He was very happy to, to plot it. And it was like a thousand five hundred plots to make the outline. So I had to again do everything in Photoshop, the drawings, and then find the plots where like a color by number type line drawing would happen. And then that would be transferred with a it's called a Buddha box. This box is basically a meter wide and three meters long, and you just follow the GPS coordinates by creating this outline with a small burn. So that's your outline. You know, those things took weeks and lots of money. So we had to make sure we break even. So that's why we had a ticket to collect. But, you know, these things are very experimental. So it's not like you can apply for funding because you don't quite know which way it's going to go. <laughs> what was your artistic practice, the images? What was that? bringing to the scientists, your collaborator, Sally Archibald, surely you're just complicating her life. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. <laughs> Presumably like rectangular patches are very manageable. Can you tell us what kind of images you chose to create for your bird? I couldn't do like a drawing with tonal difference and I mean, the, the fire guys got really excited about all sorts of things, but I had to basically have a, an emblem, I suppose, you know, that's burnt in so, so that we've got closed areas. I mean, the, the first study that it was a wildebeest grazing study where the wildebeest come in and they graze the ash immediately as soon as it's cold, and that was Felix Skutkana's master's thesis was he wrote about this and then he had to monitor that change of landscape over a year and so I created the trickiness for myself in the second burn 
they could still do all the science they needed to do. And I made sure of that. They even did a like a high felt flower research project after the fire, how the flowers come up. And it's all little grass, tiny, tiny, tiny little flowers that who knows what's not I've been not studied enough. So and then in the twenty seventeen burn it's a grasshopper and a locust which looks the same, so it's about behavior change, but you still look the same. That the what was the succession study, what they were interested in is to look at what insects graze after the wildebeest from 2015. So I try to integrate the visuals so that it speaks of the importance of the vines. You know, grasslands are the underdog. People think trees are going to save the world, but it was Bob Skulls that told me it's not, it's too late. We can't save the world, especially not in Africa. We don't need trees in savannas. It kills the savannas. And, and our animals, our big animals are still alive because we have savannas. So this bioecology is really important from an African perspective. And the scientists have a hard time communicating that because everything is like tree adornment, you know. <laughs> you then moved to take on the challenge of a master's in science. And this was I understand completely unprecedented adverts for the Faculty of Science for somebody to be accepted to do an MSc without any background in undergraduate science. So can you talk us through your decision to take on a master's in science? What prompted you to do that? And what process did you have to go through? What hoops did you have to jump through to get accepted as an artist working for a master's in a science faculty? It was a funny thing. You know, I worked so hard. Uh, I've always worked hard. I love it. And with Watershed, Lenore introduced me to Pauline Vogel. I then took her on the Watershed Walk, you know, which is the high ground where the intercontinental watershed physically divide. Um, it runs through bits, it runs then all the way up on this off road, pretty much to Pantu. And so Colleen was really interested in this. And so I just took her through Bromfontein. I did that big Nzunza a few years ago at the time and took her on this very quick walk, but quite haphazard in a sense because it wasn't one of the organized walks you know we did like three organized walks during watershed and we had 67 people and they were asking very technical questions it's really quite interesting but with Colleen it was so conversational and she got very excited about this activity this what this walk actually does and so she encouraged me to write it up. I'm like, well, I can't write. Yeah, I really can't write. I mean, my wife has stopped editing my work because she says, it's, you know, there's some kind of a disconnect when I talk or make things make sense. But when I actually have to sit and write it down, there's like a lot of jargon that's happening. Yeah. I just never had this feel. So I said, I need help. I can't write it down. 
and so she's, she was from the beginning very keen to see how we can interrogate this and what it looks like. And so she really headed it up to get me into the science department. No, she pretty much invited me and then made sure it happened. I actually didn't, I mean, I had to pitch a proposal and I was so out of my depth. I took one of my hyenas <laughs> sculptures, put it on top of a science table with like 12 people around and my hyena was standing there just keeping an eye. And then after that, they took four months. So I really looked at my website, apparently, looked at how I worked, and yeah, it could be pretty much convinced them. And then I wanted to bring Lenore in because of, you know, how she curated Watershed and how she actually created opportunity for this. So it's a perfect match to have them both as supervisors. How have you pursued the masters? How did you? formulate a methodology because I presume working in science you were expected to have a clear research question interesting I mean I think for the first few months pretty much I just read I was so unfamiliar with the theoretical side of things and with environmental science from academic perspective you know I always just every opportunity I Yet I would just select the thing that makes sense within that project. But this was an opportunity for me to understand what I've been doing. I immediately said to, to them both that if I pursue this, it would be really tricky for me. I didn't even have an arts undergrad. It was just the diplomas, you know, so that rigor was never there. So I think through the reading, you know, they sort of sent me stuff, but I was very, I think at one point, just thought, oh, let me just make a list of how I do things, you know, like just very quickly. It was in a few minutes I wrote 28 points down, and and when I showed that to them, they were both saying, ah, there's one data set, you know. Because it's a tick list that, you know, I like to work outside. I like to engage with people or at least take them up walkabouts. And all of these words describing what I've been doing for a decade became my first data set. And then with the wider group of advisors, I was advised not to only look at my own practice because... It's not a humanities degree, you know, it's a rigorous interrogation. So I need something to compare it to. And I came across this science study on climate change art that was done in the Northern Hemisphere. And they had a data set of 200 artworks that's climate change focused. And I started working through that data set and realized that, you know, half of it is theatrical. And I didn't want to work with theatrical stuff because it doesn't, it's staged. You know, uh, I'm looking for sort of interventions where people came upon it by chance or they, it's a visual experience. So I isolated the visual arts within that data set and there were about 50. And I had a statistician advised me that 50 is a good data set for a science study. So 
I thought, ah, oh, I'm just going to do it. I've got it. And when I started working through the 50 artworks, I realized that they were very randomly selected. Many of those artworks didn't actually happen. They, it was just before the Paris bombings, and they were listed and curated. So the scientists studied it as artworks, but they were actually not executed at the time. So I had to impose. And then I learned through the process that it's a frequentist study. You're basically counting the amount of times that things occur. So my second data set that I could compare to my tick list, basically, I had to then spend a full half a year, probably at least a few months, finding other artworks that are environmentally focused in public space. And as I was selecting the artworks, I started realizing the difference of how artists work. I mean, at the same time, I was learning about the theory, but I realized that the intention of the artist to reach new audiences is always built into the artwork. If the artists have that intention, then it's built in. If they don't have the intention, then it's not built in. It was quite a black and white divide for me, quite a moment of, all right, okay, so we can build deliberate interventions or we can just do public art and hope for the best. And I didn't want to hope for the best anymore. I wanted to learn how to be more strategic. That was the reason. I mean, you know, I went into the study with the commitment to develop some kind of a a tool, not even like the beginnings of a tool that I could apply afterwards. I wouldn't just have done the study if I couldn't actually apply it in my practice. And it seems to me that it's quite a subtle phenomenon that you're trying to gauge with this tool, and that is degrees of public awareness and the relationship between the public awareness and instances of ecological art, such as yours, ecologically orientated public art? Yeah, I think it started out as that. But I think at some point, working with so many scientists, I realized, oh, scientists are also hoping for the best. And I just thought, we have to be more strategic. Things have to change, and we have to design that. If science communication is such a dark cloud, (laughs) you know, it's so frightening that it becomes debilitating what's happening. And the lovely thing with art is that it creates hope. If there's a moment, just a moment, and I mean that moment came the first time when we did the first burn. The audience was standing across on another copy to be safe, like quite a good sort of 200 metres away from the fire. And they were all looking at the burn, and it happened quite fast because the landscape was really dry. And as the smoke lifted, a higher wind took all the smoke to the side like a curtain, and it really just blew it away to the side, and the audience applauded for a fire. (laughs) That moment for me was like, oh, wow, You know, if something like that can happen, then slowly everybody walks past the burning landscape and they smell that sweet smell of burnt grass. And that's 
low light, you know, all of these things stay with people. And when I speak to them now, they still remember that moment. And I wanted to understand how do I create those moments, but also within that moment, create an opportunity for change, not just for a deeply moving moment. Um, so, and that's where the strategic side came in. So, was the scientist also like the artist saying, oh, we're hoping to change the world. <laughs> um, I thought the hook to create an opportunity for audiences to change within that moment needs to be understood. So there's a self-awareness that's learned. And so future projects now, that's the very important component is that even before I start, you know, Initially, when I started, I was just making large artworks that I thought would move people. But now, with these new tools, I'm building these things in so that it fits into a larger, not only awareness, but an opportunity for the person to transform or at least, you know, speak to people who can help transform. So, you know, and those are very known tools it's not weird and wonderful things it's very sort of very practical stuff from the 28 characteristics three just really stood out with the intention of wanting to change it sits in those and that's the stuff that i really now understand why and how and if i can't do it then i have to have those partners and those early works like with fire grazer stuff with sally i didn't have budgets or educational partners or other like sculpture parks like here in Scandinavia, the first wonderful educational partnership that I had was at Vanos. And they actually flew me over from Germany. I was on a residency there just to come and have a conversation about the educational component, which was a three-day meeting. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're going to Sweden. And it was weird because it's not something that I ever even really thought about. I mean, you know, when I was working with Usha, she was very deeply involved in educational stuff, but I really just didn't get it. And even after the work at Vanos started, the educational thing attracted all the children from that province. They learned something very personal. And I knew what was the magic that they learned the exhibition was called Barriers and the children's workshop were making them aware of their own barriers and what they learned from each other. These are primary school kids. Was that at the time they had about a 10% refugee influx because it's a southern Sweden. The refugee children were so scared of the forests from where they came from that it created a barrier for them. And the schools didn't understand this. So that artwork taught the schools how to deal with refugee children and taking them into the forest because the Swedish kids are just so used to going into the forest. Nothing dangerous there, but it wasn't the same for the refugee kids. So I started picking up all these bits that if you prepare it in the right way, you could reach many more people. To look more closely at your master's study, are you creating works 
as part of your master's public artworks that have this educational awareness built into them? And are you measuring the impact that they have on publics? How do you get the data for your study? So um, with the master's, it was enough. I've handed it in already. So I just had to write it up what I've learned. So I've decided not to actually make artworks for the masters like you would do in art. I was making the work anyway. And I mean, you know, I took two years to do the study. And in that time, I continued making work and the work is already just transformed because my knowledge has expanded. So there's the top characteristics that scored the highest in my frequentist study are now a focus point when I create new partnerships. If that opportunity is not there, I'm much more proactively um, trying to activate it. In the past, I would have just let it be. But now, for instance, here in Denmark, I'm busy with a fallen tree, a massive fallen tree. <laughs> we just bought the chainsaw and the chain block today because these workshops are all motorized so and it's deep in the forest so we have to have manual tools and these massive fallen trees create their own ecology when they decay so I had to convince the sculpture park that I want the tree to stay rooted because it's fallen over but it's not completely uprooted parts of the roots are still stuck in the ground I'm building a big sea creature out of it because these fjords used to be sea. It was reclaimed like a lot of um, Scandinavian land masses were reclaimed. And so the sea creature is going to decay over a few decades. But what I couldn't secure right in the beginning when I got the commission was an educational component where I have a platform to tell this story and for people to explore it. So when I got here, I realized that it's a, a geopark and the geopark have a educational component. So, you know, I'll make sure that I link it to that before I leave here. And then, you know, the works have to be regenerative. So if you compare the earlier forest wood stacks that I did they were always disconnected from the earth because sculpture parks want to keep a foundation mm -hmm. so the sculpture is not affected. But Michael Samways is a scientist at Sunwash. He described my Woodstack sculptures as insect hotels a good six years ago already. And I really like that. So now, you know, when I build those kinds of artworks, I build it very proactively to be insect habitats stimulation spaces and they can work in an urban context as well. And then the third thing from the characteristics list is participation, to create some kind of a participation element where people can do something with the sculpture. I mean, kids can climb on it, but where adults can also participate. Yeah. And so what I've realized is these participatory things could just be very simple acts. It doesn't have to be very complicated or layered. People need to feel this is theirs as well. So when I place work, I make sure that that work resonates with the people who are going to come and see it so that they feel 
it's theirs and they, you know, it takes them deeper into their own histories so that they connect it to their own ecologies. That's fascinating. But I would like us just to look at the last term in your self-description, which is innovator. And how do you understand artists as innovators, particularly in this context where innovation has become such a buzzword at many institutions, including, of course, WITS? How do you see the innovator aspect of artistic practice, that it needs to be named separately as a third term? Uh, I mean, it's an interesting question, Christo. I think what's important is because I'm not formally trained as an artist, you know, photography studies is very much about storytelling, whatever it was at the Voltec when I studied there yonks ago. <laughs> so I've never been opposed to instrumentalizing art. What's more important for me is figuring stuff out and figuring things out so that it is useful for society. I think I didn't get the formal conceptual trainings that a lot of contemporary artists got. And also, on top of that, I think, you know, our visual art scene is very small in South Africa, and I'm not a good teacher. I can't supplement my income through all sorts of other things. So... I have to make a living out of this as well. And I started realizing as I'm collaborating and partnering with many people that I ask the very uncool questions. And <laughs> for instance, we had a massive meeting with a lot of Joburg City officials, water focused, when Romy and I started Water for the Future. And I remember, like, the gurus were all in the room. <laughs> and I just said, you know, why all this sewage is bubbling up everywhere anyway? Why don't we just open it up and find biological ways to deal with it? And the room just went silent. And this was a good five years ago or so. And then we, we carried on. You know, Roman and I started that NGO and we pushed very hard and it took a good three or four years where they then started inviting us to all their meetings because we're asking the difficult questions and because we're making the out-of-the-box suggestions. And, and I started realizing that this innovative spirit sits between disciplines, it sits between people. Artists have this freedom that's so celebrated and people think it's a mystery, but it's not. There's a logic to each artist's approach. And I was really happy to share that. And I think, you know, the first thing that I've patented was a little pocket tile that holds rock succulents. And these rock succulents, some of them are very rare. They've been harvested out of the wild. And so I'm working with healers and a PhD candidate, Nawazi Mbomba, who's working for Sambi. And the two of us are working with Kwai Mai Mai to bring a conservation project of medicinal plants through these pocket tiles into the market. And the healers are really excited because they can see how they can grow their own plants in the city, where in the past they always had to go and harvest it from, from the wild. So... It's creating solutions in form, sculptural form, 
often, but also sometimes not. That's creating more comfortable cities, I suppose. So when I think of some of the things that I've come up with, their use within an urban context, slowly but surely rebuilding it into the city and they become part of a space that's a bit warmer, comfortable, (laughs) happier, healthier, definitely. And those are the things that really excite me. So when I say I'm an innovator, it's a bit weird to say it, but it is what it is. So does an innovator mean finding social solutions or arriving at tools or objects that can be patented or commercialized in some way? Yeah, I'm a bit slow on that side. I'm not such a good business person. <laughs> but they are people are interested and it's not social solutions, it's specifically eco-social solutions. To very proactively bring nature into the city. I mean, all the trees that's dying with that little borer are not indigenous trees. So if we plant indigenous trees now already before they completely die, and, and if they die, we don't know. I'm working, I'm actually looking at that um, with the Clint City for Kietnairox. I've met with um, forestry guys from Pretoria University. And it's that's a very complex problem as well. You know, the, the biggest problem for the Job Roads Agency is what to do with all that wood of all the trees mm-hmm. that's coming down, you know. And, and all that wood, the one scientist... He got one log from the side of the road. He bought a bag for firewood because he knew the bug was in there. And he opened it up and sliced it scientifically and found a thousand eggs. And that's just that's just one little log. So it's a disaster for our leafy urban green city, but it was a savanna before. It wasn't an urban forest. So when I go back from where I started looking at how a city is built on an ecology, what's logical for the ecology for the city to be healthier in 100 years? And it's rock succulents. It's not trees. So then the, those pockets become useful for healers that can continue with their practices they don't have to change their practices because the plants have hit the bread list, you know. So it's a lot of conversation to understand what the right thing is to do and also not to just make those decisions in isolation. By the time the decision is made, it's a collective decision. Very, it's a very transdisciplinary approach. And what I've learned in transdisciplinarity from those earlier conversations that we had about interdisciplinary where Sally and I is working next to each other, this transdisciplinarity is very innovative. You know, it sits outside of the solutions are outside of the disciplines. It's something new. It's the third space, as some theorists call it. The hidden third, it's one of the things that I go into detail, the rhizome theory as well, the dissertation and 
really understand how contradiction between science and society can now be held and how arts does it, how it actually works within that. It's not so hidden, it's just a bit undescribed, I suppose, <laughs> and what it looks like. You know, it's described in theory so often, but what I missed when I studied was what does this look like? What form does it take? What does transformation actually look like? What is the art intervention that can transform a group that goes through it? Look like? Those are the mechanics of it that I think got scientists excited. So we're describing it as a building a climate culture so that the climate culture that we need going forward make these decisions that's good for the ecology. Hanley, I think you're doing fascinating and important work. And as you know, I've been following following your work over the years, and it's really interesting and exciting the way that, that you've been pursuing so doggedly the possibilities of ecological art. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. It is you can say that again. But I think within academia, what I'm trying to figure out is, so within the asking questions and like formulating questions always in such isolation, and I find it very inspiring to find questions together with partnerships. And, and it's as if the university doesn't have that kind of space where I can come with two collaborators and we come in and we formulate our inquiry as a co-inquiry. It's like a triple PhD for all three people, but it's transdisciplinary. So, you know, I'm wondering about that system is just limiting because in practice, that's not where the magic happens for me. <laughs> yeah. Hanley, thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Krista Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Bits School of Arts, and my guest, Hanley Kutsia, the Johannesburg-based ecological artist, researcher, and innovator. This podcast was hosted and produced by myself with technical production by Elna Schutz. It was funded by the Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music, Decompress, was composed and performed by Lee Rosevier and is used under a Creative Commons license.